Hey, dickheads! We have a special pink laser beam of truth beaming to your brain hole. We have a classic tonight. A master of science fiction, Barry Maltzberg. Now, he has written over 50 novels. He wrote just as fast and furious as Philip K. Dick did back in the day and has written under many, many, many names. But the reason we wanted to talk to Barry Malsberg isn't just because he wrote classics of science fiction like the John W. Campbell award-winning novel Beyond Apollo and classics like Galaxies and The Men Inside. We also wanted to talk to him because he worked reading slush piles, not only for the SMLA agency who represented Philip K. Dick, Arthur C. Clarke, and J.G. Ballard, but he also worked for Don Wolheim. He was in the office with Don Wolheim when he found out that Man in the High Castle was nominated for a Hugo. You don't want to miss this interview. Hey, Barry, can you hear us? Yeah, I hear you pretty well. Okay. Uh, one morning, this, uh, this phone occasionally uh, commits an ominous sound of beats and then disconnects. No idea why. This might happen during <clears throat> our conversation. If so, just call again. Okay. <laughs> All right? So let's, let's hope it doesn't happen that way. Okay. Well, we'll do the best we can okay. with it. And uh, we'll, we'll give people a little... Uh, uh, warning on the sound quality, but uh, we get a rare opportunity to talk to you, and we're really excited about that. I'm ready anytime. All right. I'd like to dedicate this interview to my buddy Robert Garfat, who is a bookseller in Victoria, British Columbia, who uh, first recommended Barry Maltzberg's work to me and sold me a copy of Beyond Apollo. He just passed away last Sunday after a long fight with various lung illnesses. And so this one goes out to Robert, and thank you for putting uh, Beyond Apollo in my hands. All right, dickheads, we have a special guest with us here today. Barry, welcome to Dickheads. Uh, we're very glad to my have pleasure. you here. My, my pleasure, indeed. We're going to talk a lot. Uh, we're eventually going to get to the your personal work, but we really um, we know dickheads out there are very interested in the um, Scott Meredith Literary Agency because that was the home of Philip K. Dick. But let's, yeah, that's right. And, um, but let's start off with, uh, your education. You were educated at Syracuse. How did you get involved in genre writing and the, in the genre world in general? I have written about this extensively. That's all on the record. Introductions, introductions to many collections and particularly my, a recent, my most recent, uh, book is a collection of essays, Bend at the End of the Road. And in which several essays discuss this at length. I fell into the genre. Uh, it was not, not my original choice, uh, of venue, but I went to science fiction and eventually found that that was where I belonged all the time. <laughs> That's cool. Did you read much science fiction when you were young? Critically, critically, and I have said, always said this. You cannot be a good science fiction writer or of any significance unless you have had some reading, real reading in the category before puberty. In that sense, <laughs> it's like sexual choice. Your first, your first sexual experiences may well govern your sexuality. And science fiction writers, without exception, the good science fiction writers, all of them began reading this at the latest at the age of 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of it at that time. Oh, yeah. So uh, any particular authors or magazines that were your favorites? Galaxy, Galaxy, Horace Gold's Galaxy was my beacon for years. Mm -hmm. it, 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 framed, it framed my view of science fiction, my ambition, uh, my worldview. It was enormously influential. I caught it at just the right time in Horace's editorship of my own chronology, and I don't regret that. Of course, I read Astounding. 
mm-hmm. uh, and the others, but Galaxy was central to me. Yeah, and we'll come back to the influence of John W. Campbell uh, a little bit later, but because uh, we want to talk about a lot of the editors and people that you worked with from this era that we don't have, you, you know, we're we're doing a lot of research into, you know, the um, golden age of science fiction, but a lot of us younger readers, um, it's really important for us to learn this history, and one of the reasons how why... Old, how old are you, and just as a matter of curiosity? <laughs> I'm 45. I'm 45. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not uh, yeah, the youngest well, buck. To me, <laughs> to me, that's a younger reader, but to the world, no, you're quite a mature. I mean, you're, you are older than uh, Alex Neville Lee, who has just published <laughs> the great biography of Campbell. Yeah, I, I read that. It was a great book. He's, he's 38, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, not well, so young. Well, I, and I do think that, that, um, you know, part of the whole journey for Dickheads with us and what we're doing is every month we break down one of Dick's novels in chronological order, publication order. And we're really trying to get a feel for how his career developed. But in, in the uh, process, I'm wanting to learn so much wider about the genre and people, you know, like one of the other things I'm doing this year is making, I'm, I'm on a quest to read all the Hugo winners from the '60s and do bonus episodes on them. And uh, in all categories, or just in the novel, just the novels for now. And uh-huh. um, but it's really exciting for me to to learn about that time. So speaking of, one um, of the ways that you're involved in the genre beyond just being a writer is that you worked with Scott Feldman and Sidney Meredith at the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, which was Philip K. Dick's. Home, as well as Arthur C. Clarke, Norman Mailer, and J.G. Ballard. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the history of the literary agency and what you know of it, and 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 the importance of the uh, of SMLA. Well, I published a ten thousand word essay in the June '03 issue of the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. The title is "Tripping with the Alchemist." Uh, it is collected in, in Breakfast in the Ruins, my essay collection, and it appears in Nebula Awards Showcase 2005, and I go into all of this in much detail. Mm-hmm. Much detail. The history of the agency, the history of my own involvement, the agency policies, the gossip, all of the personalities, all of it. And I think I'd best refer you to that essay. It's all there. It's on the record. Sure. And, and for me, it's a very, it's a very peaceful, and it's a very peaceful and, and even triumphant, uh, state of mind to say it's on the record, it's published, it's been around, go there. Go there. <laughs> right. And I definitely will, but I know some of our listeners won't. So, <laughs> um, but, yeah. but, uh, so with the, you know, just in a uh, bite sized form, Many really important authors in in the new um, the new era that was kind of ushered in by Dangerous Visions and Harlan Ellison. Uh, a lot of these authors worked with the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. Um, did I was there um, a feeling of being cutting edge in in science fiction at the time at the agency? No, it was not. A, the agency was there to, to to take on writers and sell manuscripts. It had no ideological position whatsoever, none. Mm. Uh, it, it took on Ballard, it took on Phil Dick, it took on John Jakes, took on Christopher Anvil and John W. Campbell himself. So uh, with with the agency, we re- read a lot about the when we were doing research for one of the short story episodes that we did for PKD, that, that there was a slush pile at, at, at the agency where there were grades given to his stories, whether they were publishable or not publishable, was this pretty standard for all the different authors when when work would come in? You are you are talking uh, well. If you're talking about the so-called pro writers, the professionals, mm-hmm. there was a kind of a half-assed agency voluntary system. The person handling the manuscript might type on the on the so-called green card, which was a synopsis of the story and its sales history. And, and the outcome, uh, the might type, uh, first rate, second rate, routine, mm. substandard, that kind of thing. Just, mm-hmm. uh, just the reader's opinion of the work. 
but there was no formal grading system known. And the agency's policy, uh, was, as I said, was completely non-ideological. With, with some exceptions, you started at the, as, as a marketing agent, you began at the top paying market and hope it sold there, and if it didn't, you sent it to the next top paying market and descended the ladder until you found someplace even at the bottom. And if you didn't, you, you put it in a cabinet and maybe you tried again in a few years <laughs> when there were editorial changes. I repeat, the agency was not ideological. The agency, on the other hand, there were some very hip, intelligent readers there, and they knew you did not take a, a Phil Dix psychedelic story to send to John Campbell. <laughs> right, you right. You didn't take a Horace Gold satire and, uh, and send it to John Campbell. You did not take a John Campbell... Uh, reactionary, racist, right-wing story and send it to Horace Gold uh, or Edward Furman of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It was it was not that mechanical. But the general policy was you began at the top and you just bounced down the ladder. Mm-hmm. So we had this image in our... Yeah, we had this image... We had this image in our head and I don't know if this is true of, of this idea of like some of the weirder stories like Days of Perky Pad or whatever, uh, Philip K. Dick coming in, one of the psychedelic ones. <laughs> and the idea that, that at the agency they would be like, whoa, uh, this one's really crazy. Did you ever have conversations of, uh, not just Philip K. Dick, but other writers? Like, did you get a lot of stories that seemed super left field that you didn't think you could place? Uh, there weren't many conversations. Uh, there were, I said there were very, there were some very hip and intelligent people there, and they knew what they were handling. Mm-hmm. And and they might uh, be uh, they might be more favorably inclined to send a Phil off the wall story to uh, <laughs> to Galaxy than than to John Campbell or or uh, Robert Mills and Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. But really, there were a lot of manuscripts and a lot of writers and a lot of pressure and low salaries. And people, people were there to uh, to get as much work done as possible. Mm-hmm. And and if you are talking about literary debates and uh, and anguished consideration of marketing possibilities, no, didn't happen there. And it, and it's a myth that it happens anywhere. Mm. Agents are not really oriented to that kind of thing. Mm. Maxwell Perkins, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about um, John W. Campbell. Um, I recently read the Astounding, and I, I'm wondering, as somebody who was around for a lot of this, how looking back at the history of this era, do you think that I felt like the book did a really good job of presenting warts and all, you know, whether he was a perfect guy or not, but the amazing impact that John W. Campbell had on the genre overall? Absolutely. He certainly did. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of so-called cutting edge or, or modern science fiction, he was the genre. The work that Campbell did between 1937 and 1950 is irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. And without him, I don't think the, the genre, as we know it, would have existed uh, and, and would not exist now. Mm-hmm. But when Campbell was finished, and by 19, certainly by the early 1950s, he was finished in terms of cutting edge originality. Uh, no, or the, uh, attracting the reverence, uh, it was a different circumstance entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, two names that but, come... But, Go ahead. But the most important, uh, Isaac Wright, uh, Asimov wrote in his autobiography, and I don't disagree. Uh, he, he was on air somewhere, and the moderator asked him, who is the most important person in the history of science fiction? And Asimov wrote, you know, with my well-known ego and narcissism and vanity, I wanted to get the laugh and seriously say me. But I was, I was struck by honesty, and I said John W. Campbell. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then they got a phone call from a listener who said, I thank you for saying that John Campbell was my father. One of his daughters lived in Ohio and mm-hmm. Unquestionably the most important figure. Mm-hmm. Well, two names that come up a lot when we're researching the work of Philip K. Dick, 
and two editors whose names uh, we repeatedly hear, but we know very little about, are Don Wolheim and Tony Boucher. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk first with um, Don Wolheim being the editor ace. I'm pretty sure he probably published a lot of your work as well. Um, well, a lot. He published two novellas as ace doubles and two collections. Mm. I was Don's first reader in 1968 and 69, and I lived a mile and a half from him, and I was in there twice a week. Mm. And I've often said, I mean, I learned science fiction. He he, and A.J. And Budgett were probably the people who were most formative. So uh, I learned a great deal from Wolheim, a great deal. Uh, yeah, so I'd really uh, like to hear, hear more about Don Wolheim because... It seems like he had such a massive impact on the first ten years of Philip K. Dick's work because he published most of it up until time out of joint. Yes, yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, he published he published most of it and and paid paid him for uh, the usual ace rates and and put out the uh, the paperbacks and and did nothing otherwise. I, Phil Dick was product for him. Yeah. Not to derogate him, everything was everything was product for race. He knew what he had there, it just didn't make any difference. Right. Well, but I know the stolen lottery. Yeah. To his enormous credit. Yeah. Well, I know he said he had an exact quote, and at some point, uh, Philip K. Dick said that um, for the first part of his career, his audience was Don Wolheim. <laughs> you know that everything was geared towards pleasing Don Wolheim, and um, but that I, is absolutely. Yeah, That's um, since you work so closely and, with and Do- Boucher, of course. Ba- mm-hmm. Go ahead. Boucher bought his first story in 1950. Mm-hmm. Boucher, uh, Boucher was his first uh, editor, uh, acquiring editor, and and influence. Mm-hmm. And and Phil Dick Boucher gave a creative writing workshop in Berkeley, California, in the late 40s, early 50s, and Phil Dick was one of his students. Mm. And sold his first story to Boucher, who was then, of course, editing fantasy and science fiction. Wow! Yeah, see, that's something and, I didn't know. Well, that's great. Um, oh, really? Well, <laughs> well, that's why we're talking to you, Barry. We're learning all these awesome things. So, working with Don Wolheim, I'm wondering. Um, you said you learned a lot of what you know about science fiction from working with Don Wolheim. I'm wondering if, yes. um, if there was. If you have any anecdotes or any specific stories of um, a way that he influenced your work in particular, not just as as a as a as a reader, because obviously you were reading work for for Ace for him, but maybe both. Like, what did you learn about reading manuscripts, and what did you learn that you translated? I, didn't, I had already been in the fee department of Scott Meredith. I knew how to read manuscripts. Oh, okay. And I could read. I could read very quickly and thoroughly and render a pretty good judgment in less time than anybody who ever, uh, who ever did this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have I learned from him? I, I, a great deal of cynicism, a lot of gossip, a <laughs> uh, series of attitudes towards science fiction, a lot, a lot of the nature of the uh, writer-editor interface. Uh, and, and I had done two novels for him, or I had done one novel for him, Dwellers of the Deep, and he said to me, we've never had a novel which took place at a science fiction convention. Why don't you write that? Nobody ever has. So I wrote it. It took me a a couple of weeks. That's Gathering the Hall of the Planets. Mm -hmm. And I will say shakily that uh, over 50 years later, 50 years later, I still think it's the best novel, except for Hell of Its World, which came a couple of years later, Gathering the Whole of the Planets is the best novel about science fiction in that era, which will ever be done. Mm, I, so, I, I he, am going to have to read it. <laughs> he suggested the he suggested the idea, and and uh, he he took the novel and he published it. Mm. I paid me and left me alone, which was exactly what I needed at that time. Um, well, you know, it's funny because we, we see through the vision of the changes that Don Wilhelm requested. That's a lot of what we know about their relationship working together and things like that he didn't want Christianity and Eye in the Sky and, 
Um, we also know that he turned down Martian time slip because he didn't like the timeline. He didn't believe that we could be on Mars by 1994, and Wolheim turned out to be correct. <laughs> and yeah. and um, so we saw that they had a give and take, and I know that Wolheim uh, was kind of dismissive of Man in the High Castle when it went on to win the Hugo. I wonder if, yeah. um, when you were working with him, if you... If you know much about, like, you know, kind of, you know, what Wolheim said about PKD when he wasn't, when he was, you know, did he talk about him much in the office or as an author that he, he worked with? He talked about, he talked about everybody. I mean, he thought Phil Dick was crazy, but that's all right. He thought a lot of people were crazy. I'm yeah. sure, including me. Uh, he understood him. He liked his work. Mm-hmm. He considered him a major writer. Right. And he sustained them. Oh, yeah, and he when did. Dick got, and when Phil Dick got famous and, and began to crawl out of the Ace Berkeley $1,500 envelope, Wolheim, as with all of his writers who went on to to better advances and, and exposure, he was deeply jealous and resentful. Mm. He, felt, he felt that he had been used, you know, in, in, the, in the sense that a, that a prostitute can feel used. Mm-hmm. And that they showed insufficient gratitude. He sulked a lot. Mm. Sulked a lot, carried a lot of resentment. Yeah, we Yeah, his um I believe his quote on Man in the High Castle was just absolutely vicious. Like uh he said it wasn't science fiction, that it was um I, I can't remember, he just said it was just a ghastly or said, said something like it was a ghastly novel and and um, unreadable. He didn't publish it in one of Hugo, and uh, that, that he resented. I mean, he he mumbled a lot about Bronner and Silverberg, Silverberg mm. when they went out and began to get larger advances and more attention. Right. Uh, if if you quit him, there's something Trump-like about that. If 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 you you quit him or displeased him. He, uh, you, you became a subject of, of, of his anger and cynicism. But that was old Don. That's what he was. I'll tell you that there was a panel, a posthumous panel at the Lunacon, uh, in New Jersey about six months after, after he died. There was a panel and a few of us, a few writers were on it. And I began by saying, I got, I got to make something clear. I love this man. I didn't like <laughs> Right. And after the panel, his, his, his one daughter, his wife, Betsy, his only child, she came to me, it was tough for you, you should have lived with him. <laughs> right. Right. All right, so one last thing about Phil K. Dick, and then we want to take this opportunity to talk to you about your work. Um, so you told me in an email that uh, you that you only had one direct conversation with Philip K. Dick in 1974. That is correct. Yeah, and but you said it was... I dedicated I dedicated a novel to him, The Games Man, in 1974, which was kind of a takeoff on Silver Lottery. Mm-hmm. And I dropped him a note before I said I'd I'd like to dedicate this thing to you if you don't mind. And he <laughs> called me at midnight. He called me at midnight on a Tuesday or Wednesday. It's the only conversation I ever had. It went on for about 45 minutes. And he said something I never forgot, and I still quote, and I'll hash it up pretty good. I mean, this is 45 years ago. Right. But he said to me, with wonder in his voice, do you know what it's like, he said, to find that your drug-addled, drug-crazed nightmares put together at a penny a word 10 years ago. It's all coming true, he said. I'm living in my world, and I can't stand it. And I I feel that way myself, I mean, in relation to events, uh, Trump and Trump world and what we have in this country now. I had all this nailed 50 years ago. (laughs) I can send you to the the books and the short stories. And I cannot express... I feel like Phil Dick said, uh, the horror... The horror I feel, it's, and my God, I was cutting this stuff out for two or three cents a word. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all true. It all came true. I, it, it's, it's, uh, flabbergasted is not the word. It's made a little close to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, he was very kind and he complimentary. He always was. Mm-hmm. He wrote somewhere, and there was an interview which was published 
in 74, he named me as one of five or six newer writers who were, who were doing good work for whom he had any respect. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely, uh, good praise. Um, so. Yeah. I read in one of the introductions to one of your short stories, I can't remember which one, but um, you talked about how you had an uncle who um, studied mental illness and how it affected social... Yeah, that was my uncle, uh, my uncle Benjamin Malsberg. It's in one of the stories in The Best of Malsberg, yeah. published in 76, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, how he looked into the research of how mental illness affected like social strata. He was the chief statistician of the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene for right. many, many years. Yeah, he published and, books, yes, yeah, statistical books on the kinds of mental illness uh, among the population, blacks, whites, Jews, Italians, etc. And uh, the prevalence of mental illness, of a particular mental illness in certain ethnic groups. A lot of pioneering research, yes. Well, and I, I thought, like, just even by osmosis and being around somebody like that, um, I'm sure that you picked up some things that went into, uh, and I'm sure that influenced your world building. Or I was wondering oh, if... Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I just, I, I thought that was really neat, and I just wanted to point that out, that, that, um, that's something that I've seen in, uh, I've read a lot of your short stories, and I've read three of your novels already, um, I know I've got 47 Which more, three? 47 more to go, Which three? um, yeah. I've read, um, I read Falling Astronauts, I read, um, Beyond Apollo, I've read twice, um, and rec we recently did an episode, uh, a bonus episode that will be coming out probably with this one, uh, with James Reich about, um, the impact of Beyond Apollo and I've read, uh, Galaxies. So, uh -huh. and, and then, uh, -huh. um, right. that's, that's good. That's yeah. yeah. And I've got, got, reasonably, yeah. yeah, I've got revelations on the shelf and I, um, I, I just didn't get a chance to read it before doing this interview, but I really meant to. And yeah. what, what well, are the... that's, that is one of the novels where I just talked about Phil Dick and the horror at mm -hmm. seeing my, my cracked dreams of 40 years ago spread out there, there precisely and yeah. now happening. Well, know, revelations in which a talk show host, a crazed talk show host takes over the world or tries. That mm -hmm. is, that predates network from which I've always felt Chayefsky learned all too much. And it pretty well predates the Trump presidency by 45 years. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was one of the things that I actually wanted to bring up, as you beat me to it, was with Revelations, because I was looking at it on my shelf, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but when I just reading the description, I was like, holy shit, this sounds like our world uh, today. Yeah. It seems very prescient. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and, and uh, that definitely seems like the thing that you and Phil were talking about. As far as like the impact that it—it's exactly, it's exactly what uh, what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and I mean the the crazy. I I'm going to be eighty in a couple of breaths, and this conversation to which I'm referring, uh, at the time he was let's see twenty eight. He was at that time forty seven, mm -hmm. and he he was forty seven. I'm eighty, so I've got thirty three years more <laughs> to have seen all of this bloom in the desert. Right. Right. No, I, I look. I I haven't been writing science fiction as long as you, and and uh, I've seen it happen with my own work too. And uh, yeah, yeah, and and it's it it is uh, frightening. With me personally, I had a a story about um, uh, android surrogates being used to channel uh, energy for domestic abusers, and I just a couple days ago read an article where. People were talking about using um, sex drones basically for that purpose, and um, it was uh, right. inc incredibly frightening for me as somebody who. It is. It is frightening. Yeah, and it also it made it makes you angry. It made Phil Dick angry. It made me angry. Where's the money? You know, <laughs> if I'm such a great prophet, what am I getting out of it? <laughs> right. Just a lot of dismay. <laughs> right. Um, so you. Uh, it was no. I mean, it was no pleasure to see Network. Oh, I'm sure. Which is an inestimable piece of work. I want you to know, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But to see this, I mean, I published. I published Revelations in '72, 
Mm-hmm. And this film was released in, what, 77 or 78? 78, I think. Mm-hmm. And good God, it, it, it was dismaying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering, are there any other works in, in your catalog, before we get specific about, um, especially Beyond Apollo, um, are there any other works um, from your, because you wrote over 50 novels. Um, I mean, like... I wrote more than that, but if you're teaching, say, if you're talking science fiction, I wrote about 40. Oh, okay. 40 well, SF novels and uh, 40 otherwise. Yeah. Is there anything I see? I see my novels. I I see them all over the place. I I have a I have this experience. It's like, it's like one of those Robert Checkley stories. Mm-hmm. If if he didn't write it, he should have. In which you're a pedestrian wandering in the city, and every face you see is your own. Right. Or your mother or your father. That kind of thing. Now, I see it all over. Yeah. Now you did write under um, a few other uh, pseudonyms, and uh, one I saw was. Uh, K K uh K M O'Donnell and some have suspected that to be an homage to Harry uh Kuttner and C. L. Moore. Yes. In, that is correct, yeah. Okay, see so I'm really interested in the influence of Kuttner and C. L. Moore, especially because C. L. Moore, I'm from Indiana originally, although I did uh-huh. live for many years in Syracuse where you went to college. Um yeah. But, um, C.L. Moore being from Indiana and like the, inf- and it, it got me thinking, um, about the influence that, uh, the women writing in the field had. We're just starting to see some new anthologies that are starting to collect, like, uh, from the pulp era, a lot of, a, a lot yeah. of the work from, from women in the field. I'm wondering what you feel about the, the influence of the women writers in the field at, at, back in the day. Well, there weren't that many, but some like Moore or Catherine McLean or the very early, early Judith Merrill, mm-hmm. just uh, of, uh, were very good. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, Cutner and Moore are indivisible. I think of them as one writer. That may not be fair. Mm-hmm. And why there is not, and she said, I mean, he, they both said, they wrote that after the marriage, which was in 1941, everything was a collaboration to one degree or the other. Mm-hmm. The only exception, she wrote an introduction to Robots Have No Tales, his Gallagher stories, mm-hmm. uh, which were published between, but there were only five of them, they were published between 42 and 48, and she said that was Henry, all Henry. Mm. Was, with that one exception, she said everything was collaborative. So I think and she was terrific. Uh, she yeah. was as good as it gets in the era. Yeah, so was he? Uh, and it, it's it's ridiculous to uh, to argue uh, who uh, who was better or who did what. Now I I've know done enough collaboration myself. I wrote a great deal with Bill Pronzini, and I can look at those novels and short stories. I can't tell you who wrote what sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering. What paragraph or what character? Yeah, I'm, I don't know who did. We did it, <laughs> right? Well, um, I'm wondering. That makes me think of. Uh, I know Robert Silverberg is one of your. You've said that he's one of the the greatest writers of science fiction, and so you're on the record with with that. But I'm wondering if there's a few names or voices um, from from the golden era that you th- you think are I'm underrated. Who? Alfred Bester. Oh, Alfred yeah. Bester. Okay. The Demolished Man. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, I love The Demolished Man. And uh, Stars My Destination, and about a dozen short stories he did for FNSF, mm-hmm. Fantasy and Science Fiction, in the 50s. I revere Bester. Okay. Silverberg is our greatest living writer. He may even be our greatest writer, but Bester, Bester to me is... Uh, it, it's a very private thing with me. I, do, I, I simply think that uh, Bester went places no one else could go. Mm. Didn't have, didn't even know where we didn't even know they were there until he showed us, mm-hmm. and so, it ended very badly for him. But then it ends badly for everybody, right? So, <laughs> right. So and I revere the son of a bitch. <laughs> I really do. Put that. Put that in the, make sure that survives in the podcast. <laughs> oh, it will. You can say. I feel, I feel about him the way I feel about, uh, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven. Yeah. That's well, just an absolutely transcendent figure. Oh, wow. Well, hey. And by the way, you can say whatever the fuck you want in this podcast because we don't censor. So, 
Um, falling, uh, falling astronauts. I found this quote from Theodore Sturgeon about falling astronauts, your novel. He said, Maltzberg gives a voice to the mixed up, the impotent, the torment of the helplessness, and to the peculiar hope that personal integrity, even if irrational or wrongheaded, may just possibly be, be able to beat the system. So, that's a... Yeah, well, (laughs) that was... That was highly complimentary, and I'd say sadly that was 50 years ago. I, I don't, I don't believe that anymore, and I don't think Ted would either. Mm-hmm. Well, but wouldn't it be pretty to think so? <laughs> well, I think Falling Astronauts has a really great reputation too. Can you tell us a little bit about this book in your yeah. uh, in your catalog? I, I think Falling Astronauts is. Uh, I think it's okay. I, I did. I was young. I was 32. I was 31. I got, I got done what I, I said what I wanted to say in that book. Right. I hope it stands up. But even whatever, it, it, it represented what at the time I wanted most to get. And I think it, it's all right. Well, so, anything beyond Apollo is much trickier and, and, and dazzling and that a consciously a virtuoso <clears throat> performance revelations is deeper. Mm-hmm. But I think Falling Astronauts is really a, is about the Falling Astronauts and is a better explanation of the reasons for the NASA disaster mm-hmm. than anything else I've done or maybe anybody has ever done. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And, and you... I've been writing uh, writing for years somewhat egomaniacally, but I believe it <laughs> and I won't apologize even now. There was only one writer in, in England, Ballard, and one in country, me who were really coming to grips with the space program in mm-hmm. 69 and 70, and who saw the disaster coming and knew why and knew exactly how it would happen. Mm-hmm. And and we were all alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think beyond... Everybody, a... everybody, later on it became everybody learned from us. And mm-hmm. as I, I say this lovingly of Ballard, who I consider close to Bester as a transcendent figure, but I've always saying it lovely. He was lovingly. He was British and he didn't count. I was the only USA writer. <laughs> yeah. So who was really on this? So so can you? I was really on it, and I was and I was on it before anybody else even saw it. Yeah, and I believe you lost um, an editing job for one of the magazines for being critical of NASA. Can you give us some more details of 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 um, what ex- what? Your criticisms of NASA uh, were at the time because I think I think some uh, of the I answered the SFWA bulletin and I wrote a very mild NASA editorial, uh, which felt and I still think it trivialized and sanitized space and astronauts and cleaned it up and no cursing and seven second delays and watch what you say, boys and you're all happily married, aren't you? And you never had an adulterous thought and you're all six. And you never urinate, or you do so in, uh, very cleanly and surreptitiously. And you're all white, and you're all upper middle class, or aspire to be. And no cursing in space, and so on. They so, sanitized it. They trivialized it. They made they they the, the true wonder and awe of space and the and the human journey, which Bradbury, if nothing else, caught beautifully, mm-hmm. as did Paul Anderson and a lot of others. Uh, NASA was afraid of it. So so that, of course, brings me to Beyond Apollo. And, uh, this was the first of your work that I read. And, um, recently, James Reich and I broke it down. Uh, we did uh, close to 45 minutes talking about, um, Beyond Apollo after the last time I reread it. And, um, I just, you know, you know, I can't say enough about, um, what a masterpiece of science fiction I, I believe this novel to be. And not just because you're on the other line of the phone with me. Um, and I found it really interesting that, you know, I knew it was very controversial that, um, yeah, yeah that, uh, Harlan Ellison said it knocked his socks off for three days and at the same, you know, saying really great things. And then at the same time, Bob Shaw and Foundation said that it was everything that was wrong. This, this, this typifies, this typifies everything that has gone wrong with <laughs> science fiction in the last 10 years. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> writers remember stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Oh yeah. And um uh 
I obviously agree with Harlan Ellison <laughs> in this case, and um, I believe the novel. You know what James Glish said about Beyond, uh, not Beyond the Poverty. You know what James Glish said about Universe Day, April 1971? He reviewed it in fantasy and science fiction. You know what he said? Show you about writers. This is half a century ago, mind you. <laughs> right. He said, Avon, Avon's blurb writer on the cover calls this a brilliant new novel, thereby making three mistakes in three words. <laughs> Oof. Ow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know the worst we've ever seen of um, uh, a quote about Phil K. Dick's work was from the Japanese translator of Man in the High Castle. Yeah. And I bet he would never have forgotten that one either. Um, but so beyond Apollo, uh, a lot of what James Reich and I talked about in, in our, um, bonus episode about it was that it reminded us of like a more, um, uh, like kind of a dirtier, kind of sharper version of, or similar thing to what Lem was doing with Solaris and the idea that we felt what you were trying to express with beyond Apollo was, um, are we not, you know, how terrifying would it be to actually interface with the universe when we step outside of the earth into space and can we handle it and what will it do right. to us if we're there? Was, right. Um, That's right. Oh, awesome. That's right. I read Solaris years after Beyond Apollo was published. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's heavy handed. <laughs> very handed, very, very European, very, you know, je ne sais quoi. But, oh, right. Lousy movie, both versions. <laughs> um, That's just an opinion. Right. So with Beyond Apollo, though, I mean, you really got uh, down and dirty with the characters as far as, um, and one thing that I think um, in it that you did uh, for science fiction was um, words and all, you, you had the, 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 the sex, the language, the, the, the everything <laughs> in it. Um, yeah. yeah. How did editors, did, did editors ever try to, to, um, to tone you down or, or, or did they just, no, give... they didn't, surprisingly. They didn't. <laughs> right. I never had an editor cut, cut a four letter word on me. No. Mm. No. I published stuff I could not have believed I would have been published. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few years earlier, but no, nobody gave me a hard time. Random House was was cool with with all the uh, four letter words. I published a story in Amazing on Ice, which is in the Mouseworth uh, Best of Mouseworth Collection. Uh, the first two sentences of which would have made every hair on John Campbell's head fall off. He was <laughs> and then it just said white public. You know that story? That too is in Best of Mouseburg. You know that story? You know how it begins? Um, I fucked my mother. I, I fucked my mother. Yes. Who would have ever thought the, you know, the old bitch had so much blood in her? Oh, yeah. That's it on the newsstand, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that was uh what story was that? Linkage was the name of the story, I think. Or? Yeah, that's another one, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well I, I yeah, I remember I know the story you're talking about, it's hard to forget. Uh I just wasn't sure about the title. But um Yeah. So uh recently Galaxies was brought back into print and, and I believe Beyond yeah. Apollo. Um can you tell me a little bit about um Galaxies is one that I read uh when I first discovered your work probably 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. So uh, it's not super fresh in my memory, but um, I just remember it as being um, absolutely gonzo and um, and we use the term now bizarro, but... Um, Metafiction, meta yes. Yeah. Metafiction, as Silverberg wrote me once, it was metafiction before there was metafiction. It was a novel about a novel. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a novel about writing a novel. Later on, that became, I mean, Coover got into it, uh, a lot of people did. Uh-huh. But that uh, that might have been the, the, the first, I don't know, maybe uh, Flann O'Brien, not sure of that. But anyway, yeah, it's it's, it's far out, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Was that before or after Beyond Apollo Galaxies? Um... After, after. That was in the summer of 70. That was in September or October of 74. Mm. Yeah, Beyond Apollo was written in, in, it was finished on August 27th, 71. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, and so that went on to Beyond Apollo won the John W. Campbell Award. Yes, it won the first. Yes. Yeah, that had to be a really great feeling considering certain people were saying that it was everything that was wrong about science fiction. But I guess. Uh, that- well, it wasn't a great feeling. I mean, I was science fiction's Antichrist, or at least the, the <laughs> lovers of John Campbell. Right. It was the first award given in his name to a novel that would have, would have again made every hair fall out of his head. <laughs> How dare the committee have the gall to shame and dishonor John Campbell that way? Right. I had defenders. Ellison defended me in a letter to Analog, but uh. it was, it, it put a mark on my forehead, I tell you. Hmm. All right. So, so, uh, we're getting, uh, close to our time, but, um, I, I know with Philip K. Dick, a lot of the themes that we see over and over again is what is reality, what is human. You wrote um, over 40 science fiction novels. Do you have, um, in the similar way, how would you say to readers who are, have not read your work that are about to go out and start discovering it, what are the themes? Underlay and the men inside. Mm-hmm. Underlay, Avon, 1971, there have been two reissues. Mm-hmm. Is that there's a, there's a reissue which came out two years ago from Starkhouse, Underlay, and The Men Inside was Lancer 1973. Mm-hmm. And they're very close to me, both of those novels. I, I think they are stylistic tour de force. I can't write better than that. Mm-hmm. I can't write fiction better than that. But and they're 50 years old, so that's mm-hmm. a sad statement. But I look <laughs> at those novels today, I can't do better. Right. And so that's, that's what I would like people to read. Okay, for that's individual titles, but for themes, and 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 what what is a Barry Maltzberg theme like? What 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 are the things that you feel you most came back to again and again in your career? Human helplessness, anonymity, and impotence. <laughs> that's that's, that's essentially you know every writer has only one story to tell. Mm-hmm. And if the writer's good, it's told in many ways and, and or, or that, and at many levels. But we all only have a single story to tell, and, and, and we tell it, and we tell it, and we tell it. And that's my central theme is human aspiration and, and the despair, which mm-hmm. comes with the, uh, with the real, the, the internalization of its futility. That's all. Mm-hmm. All right. The so- rest is commentary, as they say about the Talmud. <laughs> All right. Now, the most important thing that I have to ask is, um, so we talked about it earlier in my age. I'm 45, so I'm a young buck uh, in your eyes. But we've got listeners who are just starting out uh, writing genre fiction who are half my age, who may be even younger. And wh- what what I really wanted to do with talking to you today is connect the generations and connect the the people across time uh to to remember that we're all part of the same kind of genre of family but what do you want the generation the younger generations to know about the golden age of science fiction and what do you think is the most important thing for for us to know and learn about people like Don Wilhelm Philip K Dick uh CL Moore um uh Alice Sheldon you know the people who came before us I, all I would say, if, if it doesn't sound too stagey or pretentious, or uh, that that we all we all cared more than we dared say, and we did the best we could. Mm. That's what I'd say. That's and otherwise, the rest is commentary. And read Bester. Yeah, read Bester. If you give a choice between Bester's short stories and me, read read Bester. All right. Well, he's magnificent. I'm going to promise on the air right now that I will do a Bester episode. I'll try to rope uh, James Reich into uh, doing a bonus episode about the Demolished Man. I read it. Do a Bester episode and and call, bring me in on it, and we'll, we'll, we'll all talk about that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, he's been dead. He's been dead 32 years. Uh, this this man should. Uh, he should loom over, he should loom in our consciousness see it today the way even now John F. Kennedy, uh, and Martin Luther King loom in us. He's the best we had. Hmm. Well, uh. He's a great I... man. He was a, he was a racketeer and a fool and a son of a bitch and our, and a transcendent writer at his best. Mm-hmm. And, and the greatest writer science fiction will ever have. And I want that to be known. I, 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 I would like that very much. 
Mm. Well, uh, I have read his work. I, I read uh, The Demolished Man, I think, probably when I was in college, but um, it's definitely time for a reread because uh, I think I'll get more of it now, uh, being more educated about read the, the genre. Short mm. Read the short stories. Read the, uh, the men who murdered Muhammad. They don't make life like they used to. Hmm. Uh, the uh, 5,271,009 of Time and Third Avenue. I can go down the list. Read the dozen great stories he did for FNSF mm-hmm. in in the 50s. Nothing like it. Burn the page. <laughs> right. All right. So, um, and then, uh, and you, I know you said you'd want people to read his work before that, and you've said uh, what the, the two ones that you think... Uh, people should read of your work, but, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, with this closing bit, I just like to say that, uh, you know, I really appreciate your time because, uh, for us, it's as, um, you know, we're trying to research and learn more about Philip K. Dick and take this journey through his career and just the ability to talk to somebody who was in the room with Don Wolheim, uh, is, is huge for us. We always joke, uh, we make jokes about Don Wilhelm and, and Tony Boucher because we keep hearing their names over and over and the impact that yeah. they had. And I think it's important that, uh, not just the people who, uh, have the names on the spines of the book get remembered, but the people who worked in the salt mines, um, you know, bringing these people's work to the public is, is really important. Yeah, yeah, but you see, uh, here's a, a little anecdote. Julie Schwartz, who was an agent, maybe SF's first agent in the 30s, and he was Henry Cutman's first agent. And I said to him in, in the 80s, you know, my little eyes round with astonishment. I said, you knew Henry Cutman? What was he like? <laughs> and, and Schwartz shrugged. And said, I don't know, if I knew he was going to be famous, I would have paid more attention. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Well, that's a great note to end on, and I really appreciate your time, Barry. Um, we'll, My pleasure. Uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch about Alfred Buster, because uh, that that's definitely uh, uh, something we're going to do. So uh, I appreciate your time. Please. And when the when this thing, when this podcast is put together, send me one or make one available to you, however you do it. All right. Well, we will, and um, and uh, we'll do that with the Beyond Apollo episode because we we definitely want you to to hear all the love we gave you. So appreciate. I'd you. like to hear it for sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Sure. You, thank you for your time, okay. Barry, and we'll talk to you uh, hopefully a again. Pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks much. Take care.